Hi, everybody. I'm Sunny, and this is We Gotta Talk, a live weekly digital talk show and podcast where we like to dig deep. Real talk, big topics. Now, let's dig in. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of We Gotta Talk. I'm so excited. We have not done this on purpose, but every year I've brought someone on who's an expert in the area of hormones, and without fail, these episodes are the most listened to because, as it turns out, hormones control everything in our lives as women, for better and for worse. And so I am so excited to welcome today's guest, Lauren Papanos is an integrative registered dietitian, a hormone expert, and the owner and founder of Functional Fueling, a company that helps women balance hormones. Lauren, thank you so much for joining me today on We Gotta Talk. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait for this conversation. So you probably have dealt with a lot of women who feel very emotional about this topic. And I'm not trying to like lean into any hormone stereotypes here, but for some reason, this is an aspect of women's health that is so poorly discussed, at least when I grew up. What are the most common complaints you're hearing when women come to work with you? It definitely is. You're right that none of us were taught enough about our hormones. And I was even thinking about it last night and how much I talk to women, even about the fact that there's something called ovulation that happens. And I'm like, wow, it's this event that happens every month in your reproductive years that most women don't even know is a thing, right? That's insane. It's just crazy how much, how little we know about it. Right. Um, But I would say that most women, when they come work with me, they're, if they're in their reproductive years, they're probably dealing with some type of period related issue, whether it's irregular cycles, infertility, it's PMS related symptoms. If they're in their menopausal or perimenopausal years, maybe it's metabolism related issues mm-hmm. or hot flashes, low libido. I see a lot of fatigue, a lot of acne also as symptoms. And, you know, typically hormones aren't existing on their own. There's other coexisting symptoms. So maybe they're also having digestive issues and they're having other issues, uh, you know, within their heart or their liver and other things that are going on. Right. But I would say that the energy, the periods, the metabolism are probably the big ones that helps women identify that there's a hormone issue to begin with. And it's so interesting how holistic of an issue this is. And so maybe we could talk a little bit about you, what you just said, hormones being sort of one part of the puzzle. I personally, until I started interviewing women like yourself, was so unaware of the sort of triad of things that are connected with your hormones and your thyroid and like all of these. There was one more and I can't remember. But anyway, I was like, wow, it's like we are so much more complicated. And sometimes my experience, at least when I would be treated, particularly by male doctors, no hate, no shade, but it is what it is. um, We would look at the issue independent of anything else. It was just as if it were a symptom to be treated rather than a part of a bigger puzzle. So can you talk about the part of the body where hormones fit in and what else they're connected with? Yeah. I mean, hormones, we have over 50 hormones in the body. So it's not just our sex or reproductive hormones. I think a lot of times when we say the word hormone, we think of estrogen or you think of testosterone and those are hormones, but we also have adrenal hormones and those are responsible for stress hormone production, things like cortisol, adrenaline, but we also make different types of androgen hormones, things that are uh, similar to testosterone, but not testosterone there and other hormones in our adrenal glands. Then you've also got thyroid hormones, like you've mentioned, which those regulate every growth 
process and the body really. And then you also have hunger hormones and those regulate our fullness and our satiety hunger on a daily basis. So we've got tons of them and really hormones are just chemical messengers. So I always like to explain to people that hormones are not the root cause because of that, that they're just the messenger. It's like this, the phrase, don't kill the messenger, right? The messenger is important. They're sending you the message, but they're not the person that you need to go to when there's trouble. You need to find out where is the message coming from. And that's really what we want to do when there is a hormone imbalance at play is we want to ask the bigger question of, is this something that's being driven from inflammation in the body? Is this a nutritional stress issue? Is this something coming from the brain, right? So we're really trying to identify is why are the hormones communicating in this way? And how do we resolve that starting issue so that the hormones then essentially kind of repair themselves, if you will? Mm -hmm. So that's possible, huh? Yeah, absolutely. And it's really the most effective mm -hmm. way to see long-term change. Once you get postmenopausal, if you're talking about, you know, trying to get someone to start making adequate estrogen and progesterone, no, that's not going to happen because the ovaries aren't doing that anymore. Um, but during the reproductive years, absolutely possible. And then postmenopausally, absolutely possible when it comes to all of your other hormones like thyroid, cortisol, all those other ones. That's so interesting. So you really do deal with women all, all over the age spectrum. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, anywhere from I'd say 25 to 55 is probably that main age bracket where I'm mm -hmm. seeing women deal with hormone imbalances. And I know you have your own personal story as to why you even do what you do today. Can you give us some of your background about um, what led you ultimately to, to pursue this? Yeah, absolutely. So yes, I have probably been the biggest hormone mystery case of, of everyone that I've ever worked with. Uh, but I dealt with hormone issues from essentially as long as I can remember, always had a regular periods my whole life since I started my period when I was 13 years old. And then when I got to college, I was in college and uh, did competitive cheer. And I was under a lot of stress from trying to balance school, taking all these hard sciences and you know, cheering 30 hours per week and, you know, trying to stay fit for that and just all the stress that, that was going on at that time in my life. And so I started to deal with more hormone imbalance issues, ultimately lost my period for four years and started to deal with a lot of digestive issues, metabolism issues, fatigue. And it really just felt like my body was fighting against me and it didn't matter what I did, what I ate, what changes I made with my lifestyle you know, what doctor I went to, what specialist I saw, nothing was really working. And that was when I kind of just got fed up and took matters into my own hands and was like, there's not enough education around this. There's not enough solutions. You know, I just never was okay with accepting feeling less than my best because I'd felt my best and I knew what that could feel like. And that was really what set me out on a multiple year journey with this. And during that time, I had just become a registered dietitian. So I was already practicing and working with clients and individuals that were dealing with, you know, different health related issues and using food as medicine to be able to support them. And I was seeing a lot of hormone issues. And it's kind of one of those things where once you want to buy a red car, you see a red car everywhere where it was like, I was now looking for it. And I was like, wow, this is really impacting everyone that I'm having a conversation with to different degrees. 
So I just really started to educate myself further and get in the room with experts in this field and really trying to understand the human body further. I mean, I feel like you're taught it in school to some degree, but at that point, you don't really know what you can do to really create solutions for someone. And that's what I really set out to do. And so, you know, the first few years of my career, I was working with individuals and seeing these hormone issues at play, but at the same time, also continuing to heal myself and continuing to educate myself on everything that was going on to be able to really understand how I could further support people that were dealing with really complex cases. Is there any woman out there who has a fully functional quote unquote normal like existence when it comes to hormones? I just, I I don't know anyone, whether it be fatigue and exhaustion and PMS symptoms, or like you said, missing your period for extended periods of time or infertility. Like, I really feel like there is not one woman that I've ever met who's been like, you know, it's been smooth sailing for me since age 14. Literally though, it's, it's sad, you know, and it's so true. And that's the thing is I always tell people is the goal is not perfection. And I can say that coming from being a recovering perfectionist is that I very much my whole life have always been like, mm-hmm. how can I optimize this and this and this? Right. And now like at this point, and when I, you know, working with people, I'm like, look, the goal is not to have perfect hormones. You're never going to have that. The goal is to find that sweet spot for you where mm-hmm. we're at balance, right? And what that means is that we don't have one hormone that's taking over the others, that we're creating kind of this like symbiotic relationship within the body and that you also feel balanced, that you feel good, right? So it's really this holistic approach of that we're using labs to be able to help guide us, but we're also making sure that those are pairing with how you're feeling. So tell us how it looks when we work with you. Um, I know people are going to come in. You have a set of tests or labs that you believe strongly in running. Um, but what exactly, or if there's maybe an, you know, um, a comparison or sort of an allegory you use to explain to women what it is you're even doing, because we have so little knowledge of this. When someone comes in to work with you, what's the first thing you explain to them? And what's the first thing you set them out to do? Yeah, it's a great question. So typically when someone's coming to work with me, I'm going to get a full assessment to be able to understand a little bit more background on why there's these hormone issues that are going on. And I'm a firm believer that, as I mentioned earlier, that in order for us to really fix these hormone imbalances with natural approaches, which we can absolutely do, we have to identify what was the first domino that started to fall, right? So that's really what I'm doing is I'm figuring out a timeline. I'm trying to really put the pieces of the puzzle together to understand what testing do we need to determine why there's hormone imbalances. A lot of times I will test hormones, but not always. Sometimes I don't need to, because really, like I said, those are going to correct themselves once we start to get the body into better balance. And then we're using food and lifestyle as medicine to be able to elicit healing in the body. So sometimes people think that the only way to fix hormones is to take hormones, is to supplement hormones, right? But all that's doing is very similar to what a medication is doing. And it's just band-aiding what's going on in the body, right? It's not actually addressing why there's a hormone imbalance at play. And there's always a reason to why there's dysfunction in the body. So we can effectively use the way that you're eating and lifestyle approaches to be able to kind of rebalance the body, if you will. But we have to first understand why the body's out of balance. So what are some of those common culprits, that first domino to fall, as you said? 
typically it's some sort of inflammation that's going on in the body. Um, it's some sort of deficiency or some type of, I always call it like red flags. So it's like, there's these red flags that are being raised in the body. They're telling the brain, which is where all hormone production comes from. This is not a safe place to reproduce. This is not a optimal place to make thyroid hormones and worry about growth and metabolism in the body. And so things start to get impacted downstream. So that's what we're trying to identify is, is that source of inflammation coming from the gut? Is there issues going on there? A lot of times there is. Is there a deficiency or multiple deficiencies where you don't have the actual building blocks, the vitamins, the nutrients to be able to make and convert these hormones? And is that because you're not eating them or is it because we're burning through them? Is it because you're not absorbing them because of the gut issues at play, right? And then the third thing I would say is a lot of people are dealing with different levels of toxicity in the body and not necessarily like people think of, oh, like my liver is toxic. That's not really what we're after. More so there's a lot of different environmental chemicals, um, whether it's heavy metals, mycotoxins, which are what mold forms. Uh, or different types of chemicals that are in the environment through chemicals that we're using on a daily basis that also are impacting our hormone production too. And that we can really understand if there's an issue that needs to, that we need to test for through being able to do a timeline and understanding where have you lived? What do you do occupationally? What are you being exposed to on a frequent basis? And seeing if that's something that we may need to rule out as part of the hormone imbalance picture. What are some of your favorite tests? I know that I work with a doctor closely and I, I talk about this all the time because again, no one else does. And I feel like I wish someone would have told me this. So I work with closely with a doctor and we run a saliva hormone panel. I've done the Dutch test, which is another mm -hmm. sort of more in-depth one, labs and things like that. That's been my personal experience. What is your roster? What does your toolkit look like? And what are you having your patients do to give you that clear picture of maybe where that source of inflammation is or where the problem is starting? Definitely. So those are great. All those are great tests and saliva is really excellent for testing adrenal hormones and Dutch test is really great for, you can test adrenals, but you also can test sex hormones in there. And then I typically am going to test thyroid hormones through blood and that's going to be a full thyroid panel where we're going to rule out any autoimmunity and make sure that we're looking at all inactive and active forms of thyroid hormones. So typically I'll do all three of those, but if someone is saying no to every potential thyroid symptom, maybe I'll leave that one off. Um, but if I suspect it and I think that it's an important piece of the puzzle, then I will add it in. Sometimes I wait until we get the adrenal test and the uh, Dutch test back and see what those look like. And then maybe add the thyroid panel on from there. If I'm seeing some like potential, uh, you know, signs and within those testing that there could be issues going on in the thyroid. So I really look at the hormone testing, those three as a starting point. So it's really like a screening tool where it's telling me how imbalanced are things, how mm -hmm. much of an issue is at play, right? But I'm always going to do that testing along with something that's going to identify the root cause of those imbalances. And that's going to look different for everyone based off of my assessment of what the issue could be. And sometimes for people that's doing a GI map, which is a stool test where we're looking at microbial imbalance, the microbiome, digestion and absorption, pathogens in the gut. That's a big one that I'll typically run with, with hormone testing. Sometimes it's testing for things like heavy metals and mold or other environmental chemicals. If I suspect that that's a potential issue at play, 
Other times it's doing a full vitamin and nutrient panel where we're looking at cellular status of are there deficiencies? Do we not have enough of these vitamins and minerals that are helping us make hormones and convert them? That's pretty thorough. So there's lots of ways to sort of get at that initial issue. Definitely. Yeah. And you want to, you want to have the hormone testing at the same time you're doing one of those kind of underlying cause testing. Yeah. It's crazy to me too. And again, just thinking back to my own experience, how frequently as well, like you need to go back and this may not be the case for everyone. I'm 41. I've had my children. I have a 10 and eight and a five-year-old. So I'm through that process. Um, Wow. The post baby hormone roller coaster is its own beast. So for anyone who has just had a child, buckle up, it gets better. Um, But I'm on the other end of that now. And we're doing tests. I think she suggests preferably every three months, but I kind of push it to six to eight months. Do you typically have a length of time where you like to, you know, have between each test or how frequently do you like women to come back in and reassess? Yeah, it's a great question. So when I'm typically working with someone, it's for a span of about at minimum three months, but most often my most successful clients, six to nine months. And so we'll typically do testing at the very beginning and then we'll retest towards the end. So I generally like to wait at least three months. I mean, ideally closer to six months to do any repeat testing. Three months months is really on the shorter end. I mean, you're it's going to take three months for you to see cellular changes happen in the body. You're going, it's going to take three months to see big shifts in hormones happen. So I like to give people a little bit of a buffer room because none of us are perfect and we have vacations and things in life that comes up that we're never going to be like all in hundred percent for three months. Right. So I like to give people a little bit of a buffer room and usually wait four to six months before we repeat any testing. And then from there, you know, if it depends on where you are in your life, right? If someone's coming to work with me and they're 25 and they aren't going to be going through any big hormonal shift until postpartum 10 years from now, then won't come back and get retesting done if you're not having any symptoms until then, right? Use some of these like at-home measurements to be able to test for your basal body temperature so that you can get an insight into your thyroid hormones and your progesterone levels and things. And so I like to teach women more of those tools of like, what can they do to be able to kind of screen where they are and how to be able to maintain those results after we've worked together so that they don't feel like they're always dependent or always needing the testing. But it is important that if you've had big a big life change happen, you've gone through a big hormonal transition like postpartum or you know perimenopause, menopause, that you are repeating testing because you do want to see, okay, not just how has treatment changed these results, but how has this big life transition also impacted things? Yeah, let's speak to those women right now. I know I have a lot of listeners who have been through the process of motherhood, whether their children are on the younger side or they're growing up into their teens and 20s, but we have a lot of listeners in that stage. And this is like, I mean, talk about a gap of, of information. There's growing sort of information and prompts for younger women to know about what their fertility is or how to, but there's even less information for the women who have had their children who aren't in menopause, still having regular periods, but feel like, oh man, well, something is changing. Talk about that specific set of women. What's happening in our bodies post-children? Yeah, there's, you're right. There's really not enough education out there. And I think it's such a time too, where women are like, okay, I raised the babies. Like they're at the point where they're somewhat self-sustainable. Right. And now I've got to really focus on me. Like I want to direct that energy towards myself and I want to feel my best. How do I do that? Where do I start? Right. 
And there's so much that is really happening during that time period. I mean, perimenopause is the term that we call that transition between those fertile years. And when you actually have that last period, it can be anywhere from eight to 10 years. So for some women that starts as early as late thirties on average age, it's 43. Okay. But let's talk about what does, what does perimenopause mean? Does it mean that you're having, starting to have irregular periods or if you're still having a regular cycle, are you not there yet? You can still have normal periods. You will have normal periods, but typically there's some little kind of whispers that are happening within those normal periods. Like you so, go psycho the week before your period. <laughs> PMS does get worse. Yes. Um, typically you also are going to start to deal with some metabolic issues where you're starting to notice, like, it's a little bit harder for me to maintain the body weight where I was 10 years ago. Right. Um, you might start to have a little bit of some of those like menopausal symptoms, you know, insomnia or, uh, feeling like you're kind of tired, but wired, especially in the evening time, maybe dealing with some issues with some hot flashes here and there, but maybe not having like full out hot flashes, right? Low libido, energy issues. I see those starting to happen a lot. What's happening is that you're still menstruating. You're still having a period, but the actual hormonal changes within that cycle are starting to change. So when you're in those like really fertile years, especially in those like twenties and early thirties, you have this really nice shift where the first half of your cycle, estrogen is the dominant hormone, and then you ovulate and that's that fertile window where you can become pregnant and then you make progesterone and then you bleed and that cycle starts over again. Once you start to go through perimenopause though, during that transition, you're still having a period, but you're not making enough progesterone to counterbalance that estrogen. So we enter into this kind of like estrogen dominant type situation where you've still got estrogen being made, but ovulation may not be happening. Maybe it is, but we're just not getting enough of that progesterone spike to balance it out. And that's really when you start to deal with those hormonal imbalance symptoms, because now you've got one hormone estrogen taking precedent over progesterone. And you always want those hormones to be kind of paralleling one another to really have balanced hormones. Wow. So what, what do we keep an eye out for? Say we're in that stage. And I, I love speaking to this group in particular and so many women here and they're like, oh my God, like I'm so irritable the week before my period, or uh, I mean, any of the list of symptoms, but they feel like, I mean, obviously they're not in, they're not in menopause, but they're obviously, even if they're still fertile, done having children. So give us a starting point for that group of women, the, the type of testing or the type of things that we should be thinking about for that particular part. So one of the things that we know about perimenopause that really impacts us is that you, your, your sympathetic nervous system. So you've got your nervous system. There's kind of two modes, if you will, there's the sympathetic, which is your fight or flight state. And then there's your parasympathetic, which is the counter-regulatory state, which is your rest and digest state. And what we know about perimenopause is that you are more in the sympathetic state. So your body is more prone to making stress hormones. And that's actually one of the reasons why you start to deal with hot flashes. A lot of times people think it's because of low estrogen. Estrogen does contribute, but it's actually more significantly because of this sympathetic dominant state that our nervous system is in. And so you're more prone to dealing with anxiety, dealing with feeling like you don't have the capacity to handle stress that maybe you could have before. 
Um, I see a lot of women dealing with sleep issues because of it, especially waking up in the middle of night around two to 4 a.m., um, maybe also feeling like you're not hungry in the morning time anymore, that it's difficult to eat breakfast. So you're like, I'll just fast and kind of wait until lunchtime, right? Maybe dealing with hair loss or really bad afternoon fatigue or around that like 2 to 4 p.m. hour, you're kind of hitting a wall and crashing. That's because of the nervous system. And you can see what that looks like through doing a cortisol test and see what is your cortisol, what is your DHEA look like. Those are really good measurements of how your nervous system is, is handling all this stress. But it's also really challenging because that's a time in a lot of women's lives where they're under a lot of stress. They're trying to juggle working, they're trying to juggle family and doing all these things within their health. And so they're really creating more of a cortisol response, but their body can't handle that cortisol response as it could 10 years ago. Right. So we want to be really aware of what's going on in the nervous system. And I always think of it as like a cup of water is it all these different stressors are fluids that are going into the cup of water. So you've got family stress, you've got job stress, you've got you know, health stress, you have all of these different stressors, nutritional stress, exercise, all of those are stressors. So if one of those is pouring in a lot of fluid, we have to always constantly be scanning and asking the question of what fluid can I not pour in as greatly into this cup so that the cup isn't overflowing, if you will. And that's mm -hmm. a really important thing for women to understand and think about during that time period. Okay. So that's really great information for the fertility side of things. The younger women who are just embarking on maybe trying to start a family or even knowing what their hormone status is before trying to have children, where do you start with them? The biggest issue I see with women in that age bracket is low progesterone levels. It's like a progesterone epidemic that we're dealing with. And there's a couple of different reasons for that. Uh, one of them is because a lot of people are under quite a bit of stress and we know mm. that cortisol competes with progesterone. So if you've got high cortisol levels, you're not going to make adequate progesterone. Um, the second thing we know as well is that the thyroid competes with progesterone. So a lot of women also are dealing with low thyroid function. Uh, maybe that's because they've been under eating over exercising for many years or because there's some like toxicity issues with the liver because they're being, they're being exposed to a lot of toxins that are impacting thyroid hormones. All of those are going into impacting progesterone. So one of the best things that you can do is starting to track ovulation and start doing it as early as possible. I would say six months to a year before you plan to conceive. And that way you can one, start to get an average of when you're ovulating, if you're ovulating, what that cycle looks like, but then two, so that you can then resolve any potential issues that are at play. The best way to know if you're ovulating is to test your basal body temperatures. And that's just with a standard thermometer. You want to get one that goes two decimal points behind two points behind the decimal. And you take your temperature every morning, first thing upon rising. And what you should see is that at about that day, 14 to 21 of your cycle, day one being the first day of bleeding, you should see a spike in that body temperature. And that indicates that you ovulated and that now you're making progesterone. And that temperature should stay elevated. And if it's not, we know there's not enough progesterone. Or if that baseline body temperature is really low, we know that there's also a progesterone and a thyroid issue at play. Oh, I remember doing that, trying to get pregnant with my son. It only took, I say this in retrospect, because for anybody who's experienced any disappointment in, in trying to have children, 
one month of failure can feel like an eternity, but it took me nine months. And I, I remember feeling like, I mean, I would, I would see a pregnant woman on the street and go into my car and like pound my steering wheel and cry. Like it, it was a wild journey. I truly empathize. I truly sympathize with women who have difficulty on their fertility journey because it's such a hard thing to wrap your head around. Um, I do remember going through that process and trying to take my temperature and being frustrated by one thing in particular. So maybe you can answer this. Do you have to be waking up at the same time? Also, if you do shift work, I was doing shift work at the time. So I was sleeping. um, I was going to bed much later than typical. Like, are the results reliable if you're not on a consistent schedule? It does impact things a little bit, but the most important thing is that you're getting that temperature first thing upon rising. So before you left bed, um, I mean, I would say, you know, before 10 a.m. would probably be ideal um, because at that point, your body's probably out of that like initial cortisol awakening response um, mm-hmm. that happens around that like 6 to 8 a.m. hour. Another secondary option, though, is that you can use ovulation test strips, which some women choose to do because maybe the thermometer feels a little bit too much to handle. Uh, and ovulation test strips are kind of like a pregnancy test. You just urinate on them. It tells you if you're ovulating. They're not as accurate as as the temperatures, but they are a good secondary option that you can use in addition to or, or just in place of. Mm-hmm. Okay, good to know. I want to move on to a big um, myth associated with the topic of hormone balancing, and that is some experts claiming that food alone can balance your hormones. Is that true? And why or why not? It's not true. And I'll tell you a couple of reasons why is that there are, there's definitely a lot of oversimplification that happens, social media, media, right? And a lot of different topics. Um, but this is just one of those, right? Is that something like broccoli, for example, alone is going to be capable of balancing your hormones. And if that was the case, then broccoli would be the miracle drug and no woman would do a hormone imbalances, right? But it's a lot more complicated than that, right? Hormones are, they're very finicky, they're messengers. And so food, one food alone isn't going to have the power to be able to do that. I'm a dietitian. I think food is medicine. I love food. I believe in food as, as healing for our body. And so I do think that food is going to be the catalyst to be able to facilitate healing, but it's not just a particular food source. It's so much more than that. It's looking at your lifestyle and your needs and saying, how often do you need to eat throughout the day? How should those foods be paired together? How are these foods being absorbed in the body? How are you going into metabolizing these foods digestively, right? So there's a lot more complexity that goes into it. Nutrition is capable of playing a really big role, but we have to think about context of all the other factors at play. Okay. So anyone that we hear who promises us, like you said, whether on social media or whether even, I know that I had a consultation once with, um, with an integrative doctor and they were like, listen, we can, we can balance all your hormones just by changing your diet. And even I was like, really, that sounds too good to be true. So this is the final word on this. Yeah. Diet, okay. diet's going to play a huge role, but it's not just food sources. So like when we think about like diet or nutrition, right. To me, I'm like, okay, it's not just what you eat. It's also all the minutia within that of like how you eat, how much you eat, how it's absorbing, right. right? Okay. All those things. So yes, nutrition can balance hormones, but you have to look at all of those factors to be able to do so. Another thing that you're a huge proponent of that I've personally just started doing is strength training. 
Um, it, it's inevitable you get to a certain point in life and these exercises that you once did that were reliable for maintaining your level of fitness. I don't like to say weight because we're, we're even more evolved past the number on the scale, but, um, for just maintenance don't work the same. So what does strength training do and why is it such an integral part of your process? I love strength training. I think that it's one free tool that we have in our toolbox that just pays dividends constantly for us. And hormonally, it's an amazing tool that we have at our disposal. Strength training not only creates a hormonal response, so you're getting an actual positive hormonal effect while you're doing this strength training that's creating a metabolic response that's really good for helping improve our blood sugar disposal, improving a hormone called insulin that's really important for the rest of our hormone cascade. Um, but it also creates a growth hormone response in the body. You can help stimulate testosterone production. So it's a really excellent way to be able to achieve hormone response just during that workout, but also to be able to see metabolic benefits for 24 plus hours after you finish that workout. So if you compare wow. something with resistance training, yeah, to cardiovascular workouts, when you're doing, a, when you're on a run, you're seeing metabolic benefits for the time that you're on the run. And then it stops when you're resistance mm -hmm. training, it's happening for multiple hours. It's happening while you are eating a slice of pizza three hours later. Right. So, uh, it's, you're getting more bang for your buck from it. Right. And I've seen that, women transform their bodies, not sorry to hop yeah. on there, but no, I've no, seen no, women in my age bracket, like dramatically transform their bodies from adding weight training alone. It's incredible how much it can. And it doesn't mean that you have to work harder. And that's what I always mm -hmm. tell people is like, I'm such a proponent of finding nutrition and workout strategies that work with your body, not against it. Because I think so much of the way that we approach things in society is we're like, okay, you want to grow bigger glutes, go do more glute exercises, right? And it's like this band-aid approach. It's this external approach, right? Rather than more so asking, okay, what can we do to support how things are functioning internally? And then the external kind of becoming what it will based off of us taking really good care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, you also talk about how calorie counting is a waste of mental and emotional energy. I love you for saying this. I, I'm not an expert, but um, I intuitively agree as someone who has um, had a lot of success following my intuition when it comes to food. Tell us why you think that carrying the pad and pen and marking down our food, uh, food diary, et cetera, is just a waste of time. Oh, yes, I could. I could talk about this forever. And, you know, I used to be someone who calorie counted and that was back when I had hormone problems. So it didn't get me very far. And I, you know, through that experience was able to kind of change my relationship with food. And I think that so often when people are calorie counting, they're seeing food as numbers and food is so much more complex than numbers. It's cellular information, right? It's like minerals, it's vitamins, it's healing. And calories play no role in that, right? And we even know from the research too, that a calorie truly isn't a calorie, that if you eat whole almonds versus almond butter, that you have a different metabolic burn from that food. It's the exact same food, but mechanically it's different. And so our body doesn't calorically respond to it the same, 
We also know that the microbes in our gut also impact how we metabolize food. There's research that shows that if you take the um, stool, the poop from a lean person and you put it into an obese person and vice versa, that those people's cha they change their body type just based Stop off Stop it. Of, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Just based off of their microbiome in their gut. Wow. So the, the, the microbes, the, the microorganisms that are in our digestive system are telling our body how to look and behave. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Okay. Do you have a probiotic that you prefer to use? I don't. I actually am not a huge proponent of probiotics and I'll tell you why. <laughs> wow. Okay. This is news. I've never interviewed anyone who said that. Tell me why. I use them sometimes for treatment if I have a stool sample and I see where someone's specific imbalances are, but we don't need probiotics. Those probiotics are fed off of the foods that we eat. So if you are eating enough prebiotics, you are eating fibers and lots of fiber diversity, you are going to be able to sustain good, healthy microbes in your gut. The food you eat plays the biggest, it's the biggest determinant of your microbiome and those good bacteria than anything else. And the way that I was explaining it is if you just go and blindly purchase a probiotic, you don't know what your microbial balance looks like. So you could be just adding too much of a good thing potentially mm -hmm. into the gut and completely disturbing this balance of what's happening. And it's, it's just like changing the pH, right? And when you, when you disturb the pH of something, you start to get like different types of overgrowth, right? The same thing happens with these, with these probiotics is that you're putting something foreign into mm -hmm. the body and kind of expecting the body to say, welcome with open arms, right? But you right. don't know what the body really needs. So the best thing that we can do to feed those, those probiotics in our gut that we already have is to eat a nutrient dense diet. That's full of different fibers. You know what else I thought <laughs> this is going to sound very childish and elementary, I'm sure, but we're here all taking the same probiotic formulations, all, you know, selecting from a relatively small group of supplements available on the market. Like we're like, are we going to all have the same like internal, um, microbiome, not the same identical, but like, isn't that bad evolutionarily speaking? Doesn't by nature, don't we thrive on our, the differences in our systems and the way our bodies work? Or I don't know. Do you understand what I'm saying? You're yeah, just totally. so crazy. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, everyone should have a different balance and there are, you know, what we call like keystone species that you want to have in your gut. So you kind of want like a specific set of a minimum, right? But it is interesting. I've, I've done stool samples on both myself and my husband and like our microbiome looks really the same, this similar because we eat That's the same foods, right? Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. We're like born from different mothers and we grew up completely differently, you know? So, um, you know, and that also is something to note as well is that your microbiome is, is starting in womb, right? So it's, it's not mm -hmm. even fully in your control. A lot of it is happening right. before you even are able to start taking probiotics. Yes. A, a point over which I stressed tremendously when I had an emergency C-section because being the natural health freak that I was and reading all about the importance of the exposure of, you know, the child to certain bacteria as they pass through the birth canal, I was like, oh God, I robbed him of that opportunity. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's so, it's complicated. It's just one wow. thing in motherhood. I feel like that we all struggle with. It's like from the beginning, you lack control of so many things, but you're saying there obviously are many ways to sort of correct course and that there are ways that you can get that back in balance, no matter how you were living before. Yeah, totally. And it's funny because that's what I was taught in school was that 
if you have a C-section, the baby doesn't get inoculated through the vaginal um, microbiome, right? They're getting inoculated from like staff that's on the skin. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what you can do is you can do a swab of the uh, vaginal microbiome and, you know, give that to the baby so that they're getting inoculated. But I was actually attending a conference a couple months ago and they said, no, 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 that's actually not how the baby gets inoculated with their microbiome. It's a little bit of a misconception. They actually get their microbiome from the mom's oral microbiome. So you're oh, good. Oral. So when I eat my children's faces off, I'm giving them good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so your, your saliva and what's happening in your mouth is actually impacting their microbiome more than the mode of delivery. Lauren, you made my day. I mean, he's 10 years old now and he's doing just fine. Knock on wood, nothing crazy, yeah. but wow, that's massive news. I, I, you know, I hadn't heard that. Okay. What other like, um, big health trends are we going to start to see? Um, I, I know that a big sort of new concept now from a consumer point of view is, is the fact that we have more control over our health plan now than ever before. And I, for one, love that as someone who's curious about my health and who loves to know where I stand as far as any part of my body, you know, any, any level or function, but what else are you seeing happen in medicine in specifically functional medicine that gives you hope that we are going to be healthier as time goes on? I think awareness and education that people are becoming so much more knowledgeable. I mean, even when I started working in the hormone space, there was not, there was not the knowledge or the awareness around hormones, um, you know, five, 10 years ago that there is today. And I even feel like in the last two years, I've started to see an influx where 10 years ago, me talking about hormones was so incredibly foreign to people. No one knew what a hormone imbalance symptom was right now. I have people coming to me saying, I learned on TikTok that I have PCOS, right? And I'm like, okay, okay, let's kind of take a step back. Have you actually <laughs> post with this? Have you got testing done, right? Um, but I mean, that's the good and the bad of social media, right? Is that people are becoming more aware. And so I think that there is positive in that there is, we're creating more, um, you know, awareness around these topics. And with that, there's going to be more research done. I think that, that with, as women, we've been underdeserved and in, in as terms of research, especially as it relates to hormones and as it relates to exercise and nutrition, because we've always been very complicated to control for in research studies. But I think that with the increase of awareness and questions that are being asked about women's health, there is more research that's starting to be done. And I'm really optimistic. And I know it's challenging to get research on us because we have so many hormone fluctuations happening, but I really am optimistic that we're going to find out more information and that with time, we'll really be able to continue to separate ourselves from the recommendations that are being studied in men that are being applied to women. Because right now, that's really what so much of what we're functioning off of is science has been done in men that's trying to be applied to women that have completely different hormonal profiles. Don't even get me started. Don't even get me started. And the, the, I have to have you weigh, on this, weigh in on this before we go, because another expert we interviewed was very specific in saying um, that intermittent fasting is actually not a positive thing for women based on the fact of exactly what you just explained, that most of the research that's been done has been on men. So weigh in your final thoughts on whether intermittent fasting is a good idea for menstruating women or not. No, not great. I, I don't know that I've ever seen a oh, it be supportive for a woman. And I always tell women, maybe postmenopausally, we can start the conversation back up. 
if you, you've got a really good handle on your stress and adrenals right. and all these things, but it's not good. It's not good for women in the reproductive years. And it really impacts negatively impacts cortisol and progesterone more than they're already disturbed hormones are already so imbalanced in so many women. And it just really continues to make things even worse. Okay. All right. That's good to know. I like to get that out there. Again, you hear a lot of health experts, health experts, or people trending on social media who swear by this. And all it takes is for one person to claim and swear that it worked for them to get, you know, hundreds of thousands of other people trying it. So I'm glad to get your final final thoughts on that. Before we let you go, Lauren, let us know how we can work with you, where to find you online and on social media, and if there's anything exciting coming up that we should keep an eye out for. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And my website is functionalfueling.com. The name of my practice is Functional Fueling. And you can find all of the different ways to work together. Uh, we kind of have two different tracks. One of them is our hormone balance group. It's called Strength and Hormones. And that's nutrition workouts and daily routines for hormone balance. So it's really to be able to educate you on the amazing world of female hormones, if this is a new concept to you and to be able to provide you with implementation resources of how to change your diet, lifestyle and workouts to support this. Um, and then I also do one-on-one -on -one coaching and that looks like where we would do the lab testing and we would have, you know, an in-depth and customized protocol for you based off of what your individual needs are. So if someone's, you know, interested in getting to the root cause of their hormone imbalances, that's really the best program for them. And then my Instagram and TikTok is nutrition with low. I have a podcast as well called the strength and hormones podcast. So if you want to come give me a follow over on Instagram, I'd love to say hello and meet you. And I look forward to meeting with any of your listeners. Thank you, Lauren, so much for spending time with me. I really appreciate you giving your wisdom on this really complicated topic. So thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you guys for listening and or watching. Um, gosh, I love this so much. I feel like every year, it's probably good that we do this topic every year because there's always a new nugget of information that we haven't covered before. As Lauren was just saying, this is sort of an ever-changing field as new studies and research is being done. So um, so yes, keep it right here. And we got to talk. We like to keep you up to date on all things hormones all the time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of We Gotta Talk. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe and follow along on Instagram at Sunny Abata, S-O-N-N-I, ABATTA. -A. All of the latest blog posts are at wegotatalk.com slash blog. <laughs> <laughs>